You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Mason Pasha. Today, we are publishing the recording of our latest Getting Smart Town Hall, focused on difference-making and purposeful learning experiences in order to celebrate the one-year book anniversary of difference-making at the heart of learning. Over the course of this recording, you will hear from a number of the town hall attendees, as well as co-authors of difference-making, Tom Van Der Ark and Emily Liebtag. We hope you come away with some actionable resources, ideas, and some new names in difference-making. You can find the resources from the town hall at the link in the show notes, as well as a quick summary, the poem from the event, and much more. All right, let's jump in. You're about to hear from me again. Hello, everybody. I'm Mason Pasha with Getting Smart. Um, thanks so much for being here today. Today, we are having our November town hall about uh, difference making at the heart of learning, the book by Tom Van Der Ark and Emily Liebtag. Um, this is the one year anniversary of the book, so we're kind of celebrating it, and we are co hosting this event with Education Reimagined. Um, so just heads up on all that. There's a couple of little things that you could have read, but basically we will share the links afterwards. Um, we do a little recap blog and we welcome contributions from you throughout the event. So drop questions in the chat. We'll ask questions to you throughout and we're just, we're just happy you're here. Um, Getting Smart Town Hall, just for those who don't know, it creates space to collaboratively design, discuss and discover what's next in learning. Our time together will help to build collective momentum and understanding, better enabling us to empower every learner to thrive and act with purpose. Um, so like I said, Difference Making came out a year ago um, and it was definitely a lot's happened in a year and a lot had happened the year before when it was being written. Um, and so today we just wanted to do some reflections on the book and the, the kind of movement of what we've seen in that space um, so Tom, Emily, I'd love to hear your thoughts on if you had to create a postscript for difference making in 2021, uh, what would you add? What's changed? Yeah, I mean, let me just thank uh, Annie for her comments. Um, thanks, Annie, for your thoughts from Richmond. Um, man, it, it has been an eventful year for all of us. Um, I've had the good fortune in the last month uh, to resume travel. I've, I've been meeting with educators all over the United States. Uh, I've been in about 20 schools in the last uh, three weeks and it's been um, wonderful and challenging uh, simultaneously. Um, if last year was hard, in some respects, this year is even harder for a lot of teachers, a lot of educators, because on top of uh, COVID, challenges. Um, in many communities, we're seeing uh, political challenges that are, um, that are really ugly, damaging, hurtful, um, and stressful for a lot of educators. Um, so that's one thing I'm seeing. I'm, I'm struck by the, you know, the beginning of our uh, book, Emily, was um, uh, about this sense of mutuality that for the first time in history in the last five years, we are as species experiencing things together, a common disease, a common climate crisis. Um, we're, we're experiencing uh, exponential technology to some extent together for the first time. And it, you know, it struck us uh, that it, it calls for a, a new sense of mutuality, a new sense of global citizenship. And, you know, the last year has only strengthened that 
uh, in particular, I guess I'm pleased that um, the global climate crisis has, has really finally broken through to mainstream uh, media. Just the events of the last year just make it so clear um, to a very high percentage of the, the world's population that we are um, on a hot, dry planet, that we're experiencing uh, weather spasms we've, we've never seen in recorded history. Uh, and the, the, the evidence is now completely overwhelming uh, that this is um, uh, in large part uh, human created and that we've got about 10 years to make a substantial difference uh, or that we really put uh, our children and children's children's um, lives at, at peril. And the, the fact that that is um, undeniable and to a much larger extent than it was a year ago um, front and center, I think is, uh, while scary, uh, a positive thing. And, th and then as I, uh, I'll, I'll mention in a couple of minutes, I have seen more and more evidence in this country and abroad of, of educators, both in and out of school, uh, supporting difference-making, supporting change-making, um, inviting young people to make a contribution or, or at least getting out of the way and, and allowing a contribution. And so I'm, uh, I'm so optimistic about that. But Emily, what's your postlude? What, what feels new and, and different this year? Yeah, I think that what I'm noticing in my conversations, in my work, and, and just talking with you, Tom, is that the cultural zeitgeist right now is, um, it's here to stay. And, and that is the attitude of, we need solidarity. We need a, you know collective mutuality, um, but we just don't quite know how to do that. And so what I'm noticing is just the messages and difference making, um, the messages of coming together, and figuring out ways that we can collectively tackle some of these really big issues that we really don't know how to do just yet is more important than ever. Um, we definitely thought that difference making was important when we started writing this book, but I've got to say, as I sit here today, um, having had conversations with many of you on the call, it, it's just more and more clear that we have to come together on some of these ideas and take some of the disparate thinking and siloed thinking that happened in bright spots across the country and find ways to come together so that we collectively have a new mo mental model of, of what the purpose of education is, what we're up to, why we're in this, um, and not just for the young people, but for the adults working in these spaces. Um, so that's the kind of postscript for me is if I could, if I could lift up anything, it's the cultural zeitgeist that I thought was complexity, um, exacerbated inequity. I thought that was temporary. It's not, right? So we do we do have to come together in ways and really work new muscles of designing and working together. And then the other thing that I would just add is I care so passionately about the young people, but Tom, you said this before we got on the call, the adults in the room, we've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to find ways to celebrate the work that is working and, um, physically, mentally, emotionally, um, spiritually take care of one another because we have a lot of work ahead. That's what I would add. Thanks, Emily. I, I see Peter McWalters on the call and Peter, uh, I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about meeting you uh, 20 years ago and uh, the leadership that I uh, was so inspired by um, 
there's a lot of us that are really grateful for your contributions. I, I'm wondering what your, you know, postscript is for, for this year. Um, what, what you're seeing that concerns you and, and what you find hope in. Wow. That's a heavy one. Uh, Right now, I'm the chairperson of Big Picture Learning. So when I'm depressed, yeah. I just go to a meeting and I share what's going on with uh, the network. So I'm I'm confident that there there's reality out there, uh, and I'm more than ever because I'm working with Education Reimagined, more dependent on the network networking. The, this collective action has we, we we've got to come out of our separate programs and, and and find that lever that is more powerful than the resistance. But at the yeah. same time. In some ways, I don't know whether it was the, the COVID year or not, but I've got, I got to a real point of uh, inability, as in stuck. Uh, and I'm, then I look at what's going on in the politics of the nation, particularly as they're leveraging a conversation about schools as if that's what they're really talking about. And I yeah. realize how deep, how deep the resistance and how deep the self-centeredness is, whether it's in pockets or whatever. So I feel... I feel good in the sense of something like this group assuring itself that in a collective way we can get to where we need to go. But I'm very, very aware of the resistance and, and it's depressing, but yeah, it is I'm Peter. Here. I, I was, uh, I, I spent the week in the, in the heartland and visited with 40 system heads and hundreds of teachers and, um, the, the organized opposition that they're facing Personally and collectively at, at uh, board meetings is um, it's devious, it's ugly, it's intentional, um, and it's coming in um, multi-layered. It's confounding mm -hmm. a set of issues in um, it's it's intentionally confusing people, and um, it's it's really dangerous. It is dangerous yeah. nationally because it's so. Uh, pervasive. So I, I do want to call that out and mm -hmm. not sugarcoat it at all, because uh, what's happening is uh, is really bad and really dangerous. The flip side of it is um, Corey. Corey moans on and and Corey, you, you're you know you're. I was in Blue Valley this week, and it's just so exciting to see how the Caps Network has flourished in the last year and the how many kids and families and teachers are just excited about the um, experience-based learning that uh, you and your network are are creating. So that's such a sign of hope. I know you're optimistic about it, right? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Very optimistic. I, I was typing in the chat, but I, <clears throat> I stopped because I think it's better spoken than, than typed, but I, and it sounds very sim simplified, but I feel like, you know, we talk about the adults and the challenges that we're seeing. And even, you know, here we're in kind of a 50-50 community and we're seeing it play out uh, here in Overland Park, Kansas. But I'll tell you that we don't see the same the dynamics with the kids. And, and when we get them out and they have a chance to kind of, you know, do something authentic and real and kind of speak to something they care about and work towards it, it's a whole different ball game. So I, I really do think the answer lies in going where students lead. And that means we have to eat some humble pie at times and maybe step out of the way. But uh, yeah, that's, that's my biggest takeaway is 
I was going to say something darker, Tom, like, you know, no, the old yeah. people are all going to die soon, but I decided not Corey, to do it. It's so interesting that Emily and I were, we're just two minutes before we launched, we're, we're saying how optimistic we are about young people and that while I don't think we've, we've hit a, an adult tipping point around the idea of difference making or change making as a focal point for our education system, we, we probably have hit that, that tipping point with young people, that this yeah. is a generation of young people that are skilled and hopeful um, and angry about things they should be angry about and, um, and want to make a difference. Emily, you've seen that as well. Yeah, and if they're not, if it's not happening for them in their school environment, they're making it happen otherwise, right? They're saying, okay, I'm not getting it here. I'm gonna go start a business. I'm gonna go lead a campaign. I'm gonna go host a debate. I mean, we're seeing that in droves and droves and droves and droves. So I think that is, Corey, thank you for raising that. We think that is really promising and that as adults, we do need to look to the learners more and more for that reason. Um, let, let me invite Elizabeth uh, Crawford to join. Elizabeth, um, I had the great fortune to meet your uh, co-author, uh, Carla Marshall. Uh, the two of you wrote Worldwide Learning and what a just a terrific gift to the world it's a beautiful teacher's guide to to difference making to equipping young people to be change makers and uh we so appreciate your uh contribution maybe give us some headlines of of where that work came from and then um whether you're optimistic about more communities uh, beginning to take seriously that work Yes, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I met, I'll just say I met Emily, I think 11 years ago in North Carolina at Worldview when I moved here. So it's really nice to be like circling back and being part of this. Um, I was just typing in the chat. I'm a teacher educator um, preparing teachers to work in a fairly standardized school system where it's becoming even more structured, where teachers have less autonomy. I know this wasn't your question, but to frame the work, I think um, when we wrote our book, we were thinking about teachers working in very diverse contexts um, because there are clearly a lot of examples of innovation, but a lot of them are not happening in these very structured school systems. Um, so I wanted to mention that, that um, our numbers are dropping here in our programs. Teachers are leaving the profession at alarming rates, and that's a crisis that I think we need to grapple with is that teachers wanna do meaningful work too, um, not just the children. Um, I just happened to have this book here. I did not bring this for the call, but this is what it looks like just to have a visual. Um, Everybody should get a copy of that. <laughs> um, it's, just, so my, it's such a, let, let me do one more plug. Sure. It, is, it is so, um, it's beautifully illustrated. It has a lot of short chapters that are super practical. It has just, Every chapter is packed with a set of really useful tools. Um, so it's both inspiring and, and useful. So thank you. I appreciate that. And I know Carla really enjoyed um, speaking with you too. Um, so I've worked in global education for about 15 years. I'm a former classroom teacher. And then I specialize in global education and instructional design here at the university. I met Carla via Twitter. I've never met her in person. So we just started having conversations about- Is that um, what serious? Seriously, most people yeah. I work with, I've never met. Um, that's funny. That's that been... is so 2021. <laughs> so you guys wrote a book together and you've never even met? 
No, never have met. Um, so we, we, she's, she wrote another book that's really excellent called Concept-Based Inquiry and Action. And that was the textbook I was using in my instructional design course. It's really great. And so I would just tag her on Twitter. And then we started having conversations about what we think school should be and the kind of challenges that we face now. So this was December, 2019. And then I agreed to, she asked me if I wanted to co-author this book with her. We both had some ideas. And then, you know, the world shut down. Um, and so we wrote this book during the pandemic um, with children at home and virtual learning. So that was, you know, we got to see like all. So it was almost the perfect storm. And it's almost I'm really grateful in a way that that in a way that that happened because um, it really solidified the what we feel like, you know, we need to rethink education in our school systems, because, as you said, we, we don't have that long to change how we're living in preparing students. And so we wrote the book as um, a practical guide to global fostering global competency, where we have um, a framework to guide uh, teachers and their students through identifying issues that are relevant and, and interesting and the kids care about in your context that connect to more global um, issues and contexts. And so through the book, we, um, we've identified 50 strategies that are research supported for engaging students in understanding themselves, other people. So we have a chapter on perspective taking. We have a chapter on the power of storytelling. So how can we learn about other people and, and issues? Um, and then how to understand issues deeply, you have to get at the root cause level of these challenging interconnected issues. So we have a chapter on systems thinking teaching for conceptual understanding, and then it culminates in taking action. So um, once students identify issues they care about in their local community, they research it, they investigate it, they identify um, solutionary solutions, um, to use that phrase, that are practical and scalable, then they take action in ways that are meaningful to them. So it, it probably sounds very familiar to existing frameworks like OECD, Asia Society, you know, a lot of organizations have these global competency frameworks, but we tried to make it very adaptable and flexible for both, you know, public school teachers in very standardized contexts like mine, where maybe you don't have a lot of agency in the design of your curriculum, there are still small things you can do, you know, you could do a, a, a design sprint for a week or something like that. Or if you have more autonomy, you could do these larger scale taking action projects that we feature in the book as well. Thank you. Um, Robert, thanks so much for your comments about SEL and mental health. Um, just acknowledging how challenging the last two or three years have been for young people. And um, we, I, I failed to acknowledge that at the outset that you obviously can't support young people in, in change maker, difference making, um, if, if you haven't taking care of uh, their basic needs, their mental health and created safe places uh, with a sense of a belonging where they feel respected and cared for. Um, I'm actually optimistic, Robert, uh, that I think we've reached a global tipping point around social and emotional learning. Uh, the, the new report that came out two weeks ago from UNESCO is a great global survey of, of SEL. And I, I think they not only make the case that it's really foundational to any learning environment, but, um, but they also noted substantial um, uptake that more and more 
communities are taking seriously um, social and emotional learning. So thank you for that. I think we're also seeing other examples and curious what folks on the call have seen of communities coming together around the opportunities and learning experiences happening outside of school, knowing that take SEL, educators can do a ton when they have young people at school, but we just need each other. We need the after school programs. We need um, the local health center. We need all the people in the community um, rallying around what an ecosystem of support and ecosystem of learning looks like for young people, particularly as we have lower enrollment, um, less funding allocated for special programming and the like. So I'll just name that one thing I've seen is that happening. Um, I'm putting in the chat an example in Thunder Valley, South Dakota, where it's a community that basically said, we care about our young people. We wanna prioritize the values of our community, of our peoples and um, create not just learning experiences, but also communal experiences that really nurture that. So they're whole, happy and healthy humans. And in, in my mind, that is what we were seeking to see in the world when we wrote Difference Making, right? It's, it's all these ways in which we're nurturing ourselves, our souls and each other. So um, that's an, one example that I've seen in the past year, as well as organizations um, or like High School for Recording Arts, they put out um, kits, a lot of you know High School for Recording Arts, so you're probably going to shake your head. Yeah, yeah, they're always up to something good. But they put out kits, deeper learning kits that had music making materials. So young people at home, you know, if they were home after school during the pandemic, that they would have something um, to engage in, in making music, right? So just, I do see that there's ways people are providing access and opportunities um, to things that are really making a difference in young people's lives. Or just the other day, Wake County, the county over for me said, we're taking a week off for wellness, right? And just saying, we're going to do this. We're going to let people, you know, take care of themselves. So there are positive examples out there. I'm curious what others have seen. Well, you made Randy's day by, uh, by mentioning Hip Hop High. I think, Randy, that's still your favorite high school, isn't it? Favorite school uh, in general. Yeah. What are you guys seeing about this idea of community, are you seeing that in the communities that you work with of learning in at school, but in the community? We are seeing some of that. Uh, we do need, you know, to get out more. I, I, I took note that you said you've just visited 20 schools. Um, and I have to say we're, uh, we're in our, our studio, uh, you know, working and drawing and zooming a lot. And so I think we need to do that. But, you know, I just thought, Emily, when you were talking about things that are, uh, people are doing to improve um, well-being. One of the districts we work with is a rural district, uh, Belgrade, Bruton, El Rosa. It's a couple hours uh, north of us. Uh, we're in the Twin Cities. And something they've gone to in the last two years is a four-day week. And they found it tremendously successful. It just helped everyone's uh, well-being. So they didn't take a whole week off, but they went to a four-day week. They didn't change their program, curriculum, uh, outcome expectations. They simply changed the schedule. And uh, what have you heard about that, Nathan? I know Nathan has been working with them for a year coaching. Yeah, I, one of the things that came out of that is they created a school within a school for their fourth or eighth graders that is really reimagining what they can do and breaking down a lot of the uh, conventional norms. Um, not doing a lot with uh, being out in the community yet, though. So that's still a, an aspiration they want to get to, but it's not happening yet. Yeah, at exploration. 
at the school you're working with, Nathan Exploration, it seems like they're out in the community. Was there anything? Absolutely. That no, it's, it's, a, it's right at the core uh, part of our curriculum is, is identifying problems in the local community that, that you care about and, and connecting with the, the people who are working on it um, and contributing. Yeah. And that was inspired by you. <laughs> so thank you. I know, Tom, you also mentioned a school, Watershed School in Colorado, that is taking difference making to the next level. Is there anything you want to add about that? Uh, this, this is a very cool micro school, um, a secondary school. Um, and by Watershed, they do pay uh, a lot of attention to, um, to the local ecology. It's a school um, organized around skill sprints and projects. We, we love that um, community connected projects are, are one of the key organizing principles of the school. And every one of those um, is aligned to the 25 global goals that we uh, identified in, in difference making. We, we started with the 17 um, UN sustainable development goals and we added some emerging uh, topics to that. And that's a great example of a school that uses that framework, introduces that framework as a, a list of um, some of the most important issues on our planet and invites young people to construct learning experiences um, aiming at, uh, at one of those goals. So that was inspiring. Yeah, L let me just jump in. Um, Tom, good to see you again. Good I'm Green, you, head Jim. of school at Watershed. Uh, and so it's nice to see all of you. The, um, I think the other piece that we try to do with those, um, you know, the 25 global goals is we also look for what is the local manifestation of yeah. that and trying to, and, and this is work that we're leaning into now, but really trying to build some longer term partnerships where our students can really be doing work that's helping others who are working on those issues in the community. Thanks for joining and uh, thanks for your inspiration. Uh, ben talked about uh, community connected projects. Um, ben, I'd love to have you say more about that, but I'll, I'll just note that um, we're super excited about the work happening where Corey is in Kansas City, where we're, we're helping 75 high schools in that region on both states um, incorporate more community connected uh, projects and more entrepreneurial experiences, including uh, social impact projects. So it's just so exciting for a region to come together with agreements that value those kinds of experiences and then empowering educators to, to co-author um, really cool community-connected experiences with young people. What, what are you seeing, Ben? Um, this uh, program is called uh, Root Ed, um, and it was uh, created um, by Constructive Learning Design as a company is North Carolina-based. And they've been doing that for the past few years. So it's been growing that capacity here in, in Western Carolina um, and starting to make some really key partnerships to see that kind of sustainability uh, in that regional kind of model. Like you said, there's still some work to be done to, to tie that into the local economic development and, and, and the things that, uh, that kinds of outcomes that we like to see from, from real community connected projects. But it's a strong, um, a strong program that's brought in a lot of teachers that really uh, would not have, were not necessarily interested in, in doing community connected projects, but became interested in project based learning and uh, 
we we connected them to the community intentionally and made that a big part of the of the process. Tim put a big exclamation uh, mark behind Rude Ed. Um, hey Emily, one of the cool things that uh, we worked on this week was teeing up great community connected um, difference making opportunities for summer of 2022 uh, all across Kansas City. So. Speaking of ecosystem, it's it's cool to see schools getting more involved in summer programming and then embracing um, community partners to make summer a really rich uh, growth opportunity. Sure, and uh, forget me, I, I can't remember quite where it left off, but young people are getting credentials for that learning, correct? Right, yeah, so right. that those are experiences that are actually then validated and people are saying that these things matter. Um, Grace, I know that you've been doing some work in after school and some programming in the in the Northeast. What have you been up to? Grace joins us for having a huge depth of experience in not just experiential ed, but also in community building and organizing. So I'm curious if you've seen any of those synapses and connections being made in the out of school time space. Uh, Emily, yes, uh, sorry, I can't come on, on camera, but um, well, I've been involved in two things recently in the out of school space, one of which I was just starting to write a note for the chat because um, it, I was reminded of it by some other things that have been said just now, but I'm working with the Cohasset uh, Student Coastal Research Center um, that helped them win um, and now implementing a NOAA grant for oceanographic and watershed literacy. And so I wanted to mention this because there's the uh, opportunities where the community-based organizations can partner with and actually lead the way um, with schools. And compared to the other work they've done with schools, um, this is something where they're using students much more sort of comprehensively and authentic student, uh, sorry, citizen science. Uh, we're um, connecting to more diverse high schools, incorporating environmental justice um, and incorporating competency-based approaches, um, especially with the sort of my ways oriented um, broader competencies. So, you know, and that is actually causing um, changes within the schools. Just as we're starting the project, one of the schools has come to us and said, oh, we'd like to build on this to create an environmental stewardship graduation path for our high school. So that's, that's one of the things which um, I, I wanted to bring in, which a lot of the impetus has actually come from the community-based organization. I've been doing some other things as well in more traditional summer learning, um, uh, but there really part of what we're doing is trying to say it's the community even there, which the project I'm working on is, is elementary school level, that the organizations that every from, from boys and girls clubs and everything from their side are the ones who are trying to um, bring in more of the community-based connection. And after they, helped rescue um, the COVID situation in Buffalo with the remote learning hubs for kids. The district is actually being more receptive to looking at some of the more whole child, you know, other kinds of community embedded approaches that they wanna bring to the more traditional summer programs. Grace, you, you reminded me, I'm gonna wonk out for a minute that um, these community connected projects, whether they're in or out of school can be a, a terrific introduction to data science for young people to equip them with problem solving skills to understand how to use data to attack big problems and to make the case for change and 
Uh, we're excited about seeing that happening more frequently. We've been working with uh, Concord Consortium. Jess and I have been promoting some of their uh, modeling tools that equip young people to take on big problems. Um, we, we love AI for All that came out of uh, Oakland is now working in 16 communities around the country, um, equipping particularly um, young women uh, to use machine learning tools to take on community problems and, and make a difference where they are. So uh, it's exciting to see data um, being used for good and AI used for good. Our friend um, Justin Alio at the Readiness Institute, it's uh, part of Penn State. He just had a big gathering a week ago. Um, Justin has a boot camp sponsored by Mark Cuban, uh, where young people in Pittsburgh are learning to use machine learning tools, and then they're connecting them with uh, community uh, connected uh, projects uh, where they're able to gather uh, data sets and use machine learning tools to, uh, to analyze local problems. So as Tim said, that local to global of, of picking a, a local version of a global problem um, using smart tools, it's probably the most valuable kind of uh, learning experience that young people could gain. And they also get the the efficacy and agency of actually making a difference where right where they are. That's really interesting. I'll look at some of those maybe for the, the citizen science part of what we're doing. Thank you. Jess, can you throw Concord Consortium uh, link into the chat? We've got a couple of blogs by and about them. That would be a place to start. AI for all uh, is another great resource. We also talked in you know, before this call, Tom, and I'm curious what others on the call think about the need for young people to understand the world around them as we have new things like meta and more worlds, literally, for them to engage in. And if we don't understand ourselves, um, what we bring and what's, what's real and valuable to us here, right? We're having to navigate all these new spaces and all these new literal worlds that difference making and how you care about what's right in front of you and your neighbor and your neighbor down the street um, and be able to stand in solidarity with, with people in that way that we're in for real some real trouble. So um, while those things, advanced technologies are amazing and I'm excited about all that is to come, all the more reason why difference making and understanding self community and purpose, I think is gonna be really important as more and more of these things um, enter our world and, and enter our lives. Yeah, I hope you're tracking the chat. Annie's made a couple of great contributions around uh, new ways to do community-connected history. Uh, she works with our friend Fernanda Rain um, at, uh, at History CoLab. And uh, Annie, I love this idea of connecting geographic information um, systems um, and thinking about representation and how, um, how important that is to our ability to attack problems uh, politically. So thank you for that. I just, um, yesterday um, in a webinar, I was talking about our friends at um, New View Studio, NUVU and Cambridge. And um, Emily, remember visiting and seeing that studio-based approach where one group would walk around the community and they would use GIS information to map the economics and demographics and say who owns what in this community and who owns the businesses and who owns the houses and what does that mean about uh, this place we call home and 
And then another group would be out mapping um, smells, the duration of, of smells, and then trying to visualize uh, odor in their community. But great examples of place-based learning using uh, the kind of mapping tools that uh, Annie's talking about. So equipping high-tech change makers. Corey, you probably uh, see a bunch of that across the CAPS network of equipping young people to use smart tools to make a difference. Yeah, we do. I, the, Tom, the thing that it reminded me of actually was a conversation that you heard, which was we had a chance to record with a couple of teachers from Wisconsin and they, they use the approach of uh, getting kids out into the wild is basically what they call it. And so let them get out, you know, let them use technology, certainly. But just the idea of being present in a community, being present in situations, making observations, then, then pushing them to a point of stress, but not distress, is, which is a line that Greg Brown from CAPS uses all the time. You know, I, I'm reminded of the, the story they told where on the very first day of class for the school year, they took all of the students out into the community. And then by the end of the class period, they were all in basically an amphitheater shell with a microphone talking about who they were to whoever walked by. And <laughs> I'm just imagining myself in high school in that situation, how terrified I would have been. But what a great experience it was for them and a confidence builder. So there's lots of low and high tech ways to, to help students kind of figure out who they are and, and do cool things out in the community. Randy was just asking about a, a list of student challenges. Um, this would be a good blog to work on together. Um, Randy, so if, what, what, if, if anybody knows of um, existing challenges that are out there, I know we, we've written about uh, three or four of them, the AI family challenge, uh, that's Technovation. We've written about them, Randy. We've written about uh, Prepper, P-R-E-P-R.org, a, a Toronto-based challenge organization that equips difference-making. We've written about TKS.world, the Knowledge Society, uh, which is a global um, after-school program, the coolest after-school program I've ever seen. Um, it's also very expensive, but it... Um, combined skill sprints with community connected projects. And we have featured on our podcast, three um, change makers that, that blew me away. Uh, Randy, we'll, we'll compile some of those and turn that into a blog. Um, thanks for your contributions, everybody, to help us fill that out. Nathan and I are sharing my laptop right now. So it was Nathan's, Nathan's good question. And Thank you. <laughs> I know a lot of teachers want to do this, but they feel like they don't have time to put it together themselves. So if they can just plug into something that's going on, like, for example, like the New Roads yep. uh, Climate a Teen Changemakers Film Festival is accepting applications right now. Uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of things that are happening that anyone can plug into, but I haven't found like a go-to like curated sort of ongoing thing. So if, if that's worth us doing and, and curating, I think it would be really valuable. I mean, on this call, we could curate, we could curate 50 different, you know, 50, excuse me, different examples. Um, I think that would be worthwhile. I know Justin with the Readiness Institute, who Tom mentioned before, ran a summer program where the young people, I think he ran it, were um, picking 
a different design challenge based off of the ideas and difference making to do projects um, and started a big Google Doc of just all the ways in which young people could connect online already. So I'll try and source that and share it with everyone. Yeah, I like this idea, Corey, of keeping it local and simple. A lot of the most powerful projects I see, and not just projects, but work that young people are doing, is when there's some connection locally, and then they can engage and connect globally to share what it is they're doing or get advice or find a mentor. Um, so I really, really appreciate that. The other thing I'll note too, if Grace, please come on and tell us, Grace, about that. I love constructive adversity. The other thing I've noticed um, post-script is that higher ed is responding in some ways and in certain ways they're not, but in others they are. I put a link in the chat to UC Davis, who is openly asking for a review from the UN about how they align their work to the sustainable, to the SDGs, which I think is bold and big and uh, a step in the right direction. We've seen California ditch looking at test scores, certain test scores, right? So I do think there is somewhat of a shift. And I, I do believe that a lot of the inequities stem from the fact that colleges and a lot of post-sec opportunities look to those tests. So that is some signal or some indication that there's a shift at that level. Um, Tom, I don't know if you've seen anything in that space shifting towards difference making and caring more about purpose, passion, and, and what people care about. I think more young people in the post-secondary space are more interested than ever, but I think colleges remain um, very slow to um, to support young people doing authentic community-connected work. Um, you know, we included Olin College, my favorite example of it's a tiny school near Grace in Massachusetts, um, but they're a beautiful example of equipping young people to uh, to make the world better. Um, would love to see more institutions of higher ed get serious about that. It's clear they need a very new value proposition. Higher ed is broken in America and America is walking away from it um, quickly. And I, I think embracing authentic uh, difference making would help reinvigorate the, the value proposition. Tom, can I, I'm sorry, I wasn't able to come on. I'm trying to, trying to do this, even though I have to be doing something else. Um, but um, so glad that there's somebody here from Tahoe. They have a fabulous thing. I'll let um, Greg say more if he, if he wants on that part. Um, but I just wanted to mention because I have spent a little bit of time with Olin, but also, um, you know, there are other programs and, and I just hope that, I know that more colleges and universities are looking uh, at some of them. So Worcester Polytechnic Institute, for instance, which is one of the places that Olin went when they started. Uh, WPI has had um, a different sort of more real world approach for over 30 years. And they even have, they have, for instance, a whole application process you can do that is all portfolio based. And not only is it not, you know, um, include testing, but it's basically based on, on a portfolio. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, and, for, and another thing, for instance, instead of going to study abroad and go stay in London or wherever and have courses, whether it's from their own uh, people they ship over there or local um, academics, instead they go abroad and do a project. It could be anything from helping create a water system in a village in Africa to helping, I remember one of the groups went and helped London, they did some actual, you know, work for the city of London when it was putting in its, um, what do you call it, sort of uh, 
tax based um, to drive into London now, you know, you're 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 charged for, um, you know, the privilege of spewing that, <laughs> um, you know, uh, petrol um, pollution, etc. So um, there are more. And I do know the one thing of hope is WPI has now opened a summer program for other universities to come and learn more about the kinds of project based and real world learning contribution based. I mean, all of their projects, which almost everybody participates in, are not just projects abroad or here, but, but contribution-based projects. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Grace, uh, Greg, any, anything you wanna add about Tahoe Expedition? Yeah, no, I just, thanks for um, letting me be part of this group. This is my first time joining this meeting. Typically someone else from my organization, Ken Martin would be on these calls. So he passed me along and I'm excited to, to, to hear all of you and, and learn from you and, and can, continue to attend these. Um, constructive adversity is, is, yeah, it's zones of proximal development. That's where the idea comes from, is if you can keep kids in their growth zone, then it unlocks certain parts of their brain that allows them to retain whatever's happening to them. So if we can create a constructive adversity moment during an academic lesson, then we can potentially, in theory, deepen that academic concept while also developing some character traits at the same time. That is assuming we are controlling the adversity. Constructive means we have literal and figurative safety nets all around the kids at all times. Um, and they know that. So when the wildfires came through Tahoe, that was not controlled. Um, there was, it was real adversity. Um, at the same time, we've been really shifting constructive adversity to this more this concept of curveballs because constructive adversity is something that really is applicable to those students who kind of have the privilege of not dealing with adversity in their everyday life. Um, we realize a lot of students out there have tremendous adversity in their normal day life. So the idea of manufacturing adversity for them um, becomes a little, a little overreaching, a little, a little privileged, unfortunately. So we're shifting away from that and trying to create these real world scenarios by which, you know, you're in a work environment and you're presenting on a group project and guess what? The internet's out. You're now presenting via, you know, paper. So here's a real world curveball. So when trying to get there, prepare those kids for more of those real rides, real world simulations. That being said, the wildfires um, were a real world situation. We had to pivot lesson planning, had to pivot class. Um, we were teaching outdoors to, um, to mitigate COVID. And now we're not able to go outdoors because of AQI. Um, so we had to work with our students. And again, back to the point of student-driven learning, how do you think we should navigate this? And fortunately, because we have had our students go through this constructive adversity for many years, our students were able to lead us out of these very challenging situations of the real world challenge of, you know, our community was being evacuated. That was our reality. How can we keep together as a community and turn this into a learning opportunity? But it first came back to social emotional wellness. Let's make space for that first and foremost, which has been great. As a school, we committed to that for the first six weeks, um, but then the Star Renaissance tests come out, and right. now we have our data out, and now parents are concerned about math scores. So while the um, emphasis on social emotional has been great, here we are looking at um, math test scores aren't where they need to be. So it's that fine balance we've been going with, I'm sure the rest of you, is how do you find time for the social emotional yet still hitting those core standards that are the expectation of many parents. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate that. Uh, Mason, do we have time for a really short clip from TKS? I think that we do. Yes. This, this, is, uh, this is the coolest thing that I've seen since the book came out. Again, it's the Knowledge Society, tks.world. Um, check out what these world changers are we, doing. We had a few of the 
students on, um, but Nyla, she's 14 and said she's particularly interested in sustainable development and particularly where it intersects with nanotechnology. I feel like TCAS has really given me the resources to be able to go out and make an impact. Like Sophia said, like I've always wanted to make impact. I just didn't know how. And so I've learned all these crazy things at TCAS. Like I've learned about mindsets and how to grow myself that way. I've learned about emerging tech and I've learned tips like a really big one for me was just like, you can go on LinkedIn and just reach out to experts and some of them won't respond, but some of them will. And then they're just like humongous helps. And so learning, you're learning all of these really valuable things from a young age and that's compounding and that's going to help you um, succeed in the future and help you to start succeed now. You don't have to wait until you're like 20 to start making a difference, start working on the things you're passionate about, you can start now. And so I think that's what TCAS has helped me to really realize. Thanks Mason. She's also a best-selling children's author in addition to being a nanotechnology expert. So let's not underestimate what young people can do if we support uh, their, their strengths and interests and values. Thanks for being with us. Emily, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Great to see you. Yeah, and we're thankful for all of you in the big ways you're making difference in your own communities. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.